Thank you very much. Just um, want to start with uh, a, a psalm, Psalm 104. Um, it says something like this. I've just lost my network connection. I was going to impress you by reading it from my phone, but there's no, there's no connection. But it, it goes something like this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. God is a majestic God, and he's clothes himself with light. One of his garments is light. And he stretches out the stars in the heavens like a tent. Just like a tent. I mean, I find putting a tent up quite difficult. But God just puts the stars in the heavens like a tent. Do you want to just read it out, Nigel? You got it there, haven't you, please? I'll just read it. Thank you. So Psalm 104. And it says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. It's better than a Ferrari. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Thank you. Now I want to look, as you can see, at uh, some things about beginnings, basically. It's foundational, and um, one of the things I find is that some of the most contested parts of Scripture are the beginnings, the end, the book of Revelation, and the cross. And it's not surprising, is it? Because all of those things deal with either the entrance of the devil the defeat of the devil, and the exit of the devil. And uh, so we, we shouldn't be too surprised that those are passages that are contested. And it's because the devil was defeated at the cross that we're sitting here today. And um, you, you may need a new beginning. Uh, you may be here today and you've never met Christ. And you can start a new life this morning. Um, but oh, what I want to do, I guess, speak to the majority of you about the confidence that we can have. And I feel, just as we look at this, our natural reaction will be this, just to enlarge our understanding of how great God is. We've already been singing about that, haven't we? And uh, my goal here really is that we will just lead us into worship and that it will stand with you during the whole of the week as well. And for the rest of your life. So that's what we're going to look at. Uh, I don't know if you knew that, know this, but um, the. Um, do I point it at that? I've got to turn it on, that helps. Thank you so much. Okay. The uh, Bible is a, a library of 66 books, it comes from the plural, Biblia. And the, um, one of the books is. Uh, was named, the first book was just called this, In the Beginning. Um, so um, we didn't know it as the, what I'm going to say in a minute. It was just called In the Beginning. So if you wanted to read the scroll, you'd just say, could you pass me the In the Beginning scroll? Uh, it wouldn't be in English, obviously. It was just one word in Hebrew. But one of the challenges of that for me as a speaker is uh, speaking it, and particularly as the ending of it sounds a bit rude. As well, so that's intrigued you, hasn't it? Um, so you can look into that yourself and find out. <laughs> the, um, the, and the other second books, are there, they're called this, and he called, and these are the names of. And so it wasn't till 250 years before the birth of Christ that they were translated into Greek, the Septuagint, and then into Latin, and so they were called those. So in the beginning is now what we're going to look at. It's called Genesis. It means origins. And it's good to know, isn't it? This is not a a science book. Um, This is not telling us necessarily all the hows. This is a theology book, and it tells us the whys. This is not the um, men's views. This is God's book. So God himself chooses the subject matter. It's not man-chosen. It covers the history of the universe, but it's taken from God's perspective. 
And the more we look at this, and the more I'm going to say, I trust it will just cause you to fall on your knees and worship God. Because it's the work of a genius. It really is the work of a genius. Not my words, obviously. But it's the work of a genius. So, let's um, think about this right at the beginning. Moses obviously wrote the first five books. They're called the Pentateuch. Uh, so you've got Genesis through to Deuteronomy. It's obvious that the, first, the last four in that kind of uh, series of five, he was around at the events. So it's not hard to understand how he could write about it. He couldn't write about his death. So that last part was obviously written by somebody else, most probably Joshua. But what about Genesis? Because here's the problem. The last parts of Genesis just the last chapter, they deal with events that are at least 300 years before Moses was born. So, so how did he know about that? Yeah, then you extrapolate backwards and think, you know, whatever your view of the timeline is, um, uh, you know, what about the beginnings of Genesis? These, these are hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, maybe more than that, before Moses was born. So how did he know? Well, if you like songs, it gives you a bit of a clue, uh, and particularly if you like folk songs, because songs basically were used before television, uh, before books and things like that, and they handed down from one generation to another the events of history. Um, and so you, you couple that around campfires along with things like family trees, so the, if you look in the book of uh, the beginnings, in the beginning, basically the events really are oral tradition. Oral tradition was a lot of the resource, as well as obviously Moses being spoken to by God. We'll come to that in a minute. It's important that we understand that, because the two main elements of Genesis, is full of family trees, and it's full of the exploits of heroes. And that's what oral tradition concentrates on, those two things. So a lot of the resource that came down to Moses for the book in the beginning, with that rude word in Hebrew when you translate it to English, that we call Genesis, fortunately, Origins, it's an amazing book. It's an amazing book because it's, it's passed down by God meeting Moses face to face, and it's also passed down through oral tradition. And yet, the very first chapter, well, it's actually not. Chapters are annoying, aren't they? Because they're the work of man trying to put things in, and they don't always put it in the right categories. Um, So they're helpful, but they're annoying as well. And so the first section of Genesis, actually, is Genesis 1, Genesis 2, verse 3. That's the first section. The rest is kind of like God revealing things to Moses, oral tradition, But it's as if God says right at the beginning, this is my book, I'm writing it, I'm going to reveal this directly to you, Moses, Uh, take this down. Are you good at shorthand, Moses? Because I'm going to speak quickly. (laughs) And it's amazing, isn't it? Psalm 103, verse 7, he says, he made, this is God, made his ways known to Moses. Isn't that an amazing word? And in Exodus 33, 11, we see this. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. You know, what did God reveal to Moses when he was on top of the mountain? I guess some of this. Was it all of it? Most probably not. We just don't know. But however he did it and whenever he did it, he said, Moses, here's the beginning. I want you to take this down. And so we come to these words. I'm not going to give you uh, all of these, but let's just look at a little bit. So in the beginning, God, those are the first four words, created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, because he's a speaking God, let there be light. The very God who's clothed in the garment, you know, we've got Marks and Spencer's garments on, but God's got the garment of light on. He's amazing, isn't he? Doesn't he take your breath away? Don't you worship him? Don't you love the living God? 
Isn't it quite frightening to have him in the midst of us? Isn't it? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Get used to that refrain. It comes seven times, as you know. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day, and so on. It's an intriguing book, isn't it? Eh? And I've got three things I really want to focus on. And the first is, is that we learn a lot about God. When I first went to this a couple of weeks ago, it's been living with me since then. It's just very recent, obviously. The, um, I, I thought I was going to be looking at Adam. But as I started to open the book of Genesis up, I realized the subject matter is God. It's all about God. I'm a bit thick, you see. It's all about God. It's all about him. In fact, the word God, in this, take this down directly, Moses' first section, contains the word God 35 times. He is the subject. He's the one that is the center and the focus of the history of the universe. And so we learn about him, basically. In the beginning, God. So what do we learn about God? Well, here's some of the things. First of all, he's personal. He's personal. He is a person. He has personality. He's not an it. He's not a force. And uh, he thinks. He feels. He has emotions. Men, did you hear that? He has emotions. And he makes decisions And he makes decisions, unlike you and I, that he sticks to. We're not quite used to to decisions that people stick to, are we? Well, God is like that. And uh, not in this first verse, but later on in Genesis, he's revealed mainly by the word Yahweh. Yahweh. Such a sacred name that I would be blaspheming if if this was a gathering of Jewish people. You couldn't say it. And his word means, in English, if you like, being. Yahweh equals being. He is, he was, and he will be. So he was, he is, and he will be. He's the being God. The God who we gather to on Sunday and who we worship and who we dedicate our lives to, basically, is the being God. In other words, another good name for him is, he is the always. Now, doesn't that help you? Because he's with you on Monday. You're already focusing on a a, a big operation on Monday. But for every one of us, Monday's coming. And we can be confident the being God is always with us. He's also the God who speaks and communicates. So he's... He communicates, and he communicates well. Come with me, look. It's not written in scientific language. You know, there's a a challenge here. It doesn't give all the answers to the geologist or the archaeologist. It's accurate when it comments, but it's not a science book. And it's not written in that kind of lingo. But it's written in a way that anyone, did you like that word, anyone? Anyone, anywhere, and at any time can understand. That's how it's written. There's only 76 Hebrew words that are used. And yet, it conveys profound subject matter written in simplistic ways, with simplistic verbs, with simple nouns, and it's written so a child of seven can understand. In any time zone, in any generation. And it talks about the origins of the universe. Isn't that amazing? He's an amazing God. And it's a great contrast, in fact it's a total contrast, to other complex creation alternatives that do exist and are out there. If you don't believe me, go and try some. It's totally confusing. I would say this, I said it already, it takes a genius to communicate this way. 
the God of the universe who clothes himself with lights takes our breath away. Don't you love him? Don't you love him? Don't you feel secure in him? When you understand more of who he is, it makes you feel so secure to know that you're his child and he loves you. We also told he's a three-in-one God. How, how does that work? Answer, don't know. But he's a three-in-one God. Because the word is, in the beginning, Elohim. That's the first word used. And the letters I am talk of a God who is three or more. And yet, the verbs are in the singular. And so we have the introduction to a God who is one and yet is three. Right in the first four words. This is an amazing God, isn't it? Eh? It's a fabulous book and it just takes your breath away. But also, he's powerful and creative. In just two words of human text, in Genesis 1.16, you have a look at it later on, God creates the stars. It's just two words in Hebrew. And the number of stars that you can't count, I mean, you know, astronomers tell us they just can't count them. And numbers are given such as there's a hundred billion stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way. But also, there are hundreds of galaxies out there that we don't even know exist. And in two Hebrew words, the living God who is, the always being God, spoke. And his power was such that the stars came into being. I mean, come on, he takes your breath away, doesn't he? If you have my permission to worship him at any time. You don't have to use the word hallelujah either. You can if you want to. And it's amazing because we know this, don't we? Physics tells us that you love physics. You don't love physics? All right, come on. Come on. I don't either, actually. The, um, but it tells us this, that something never develops into nothing. You can't have nothing and it becomes something. That's really what it tells us. It's called, the, you know, we give it these lovely phrases that put you to sleep instantly. It's called the cause and effect principle. Because notice this, God is already around. He's there before the creation. See, you can't be a pantheist. You, in fact, if you believe Genesis, you can't be in any ist. Because <laughs> you're a theist. That's the only ist you can be. You have to believe in God. And, and yet God works generally by the laws of physics. Of course he does, because it's the very laws he made. The only reason we have science is because he's a God of order. I'm going to say about that in a minute. But also, because he's a God of power, he can do what he wants. And so he makes light in verse 1 before he makes the light generators in verse 4. He doesn't call them the moon and the sun because other creation accounts call them gods. You see, people used to worship the sun and the moon. So he doesn't call, call them that. He deliberately calls them by other names because he is the creator and he's the one we worship. But So where do we get our light from, from day one to day four? And is it a 24-hour day or is it a period of time or is it a teaching day or is it other days? But none of that's a problem because if God's all-powerful, the God who usually works according to the science he created and the laws of physics can work however he wants to. And so if his garment is called light, you know, it's a bit like my kind of like Marks and Spencer's black jumper here, if you listen to this on a, on a download... It's like God's garment of light, so he can make light for four days without having the sun and the moon. Are you with me? How big is your God? Hello? 
How big is he? You see, on Monday, how big is the always God with you? How big is he? How big is he? And lastly, in this first point, he's the God of order. He is the God of order. Who likes order? Yeah, okay. We, most of us like order. Who likes chaos? Okay, we'll get you afterwards. Okay? See, everything in this first chapter is clearly ordered. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. There's this pattern. And in you know, that rhythm, the first day, and then there was that, and there was that, and the first day ended. Boom. That happened seven times. Have you noticed that the first sentence in English is ten words, but in Hebrew it's seven? And there's patterns of threes and sevens in this first chapter of Hebrews, which is so simple that take your breath away. And if you like, if you're a numerist or you like numbers, you know you'd really go off on one at this point. <laughs> but fortunately, I'm not going to be like that. But I will tell you this: there are seven continents. There are seven oceans. There are seven colors in the rainbow. There are seven spectrums on the musical scale. Seven notes. You see, God's amazing. And there are seven words in the first sentence that God gives directly to Moses. He's a God of order. He's a God who takes your breath away. He's the God who says, follow me with all of your heart. And you say, well, if you're that big, I'm going to. Yeah, but I don't understand. Ah, but are you following me? I'm not asking you to understand everything. I'm asking you to follow me. Are you following me? And so you see this whole thing. There's there's six days are divided into two threes. There's three days to create the world and three days to create the creatures that go in it. And there's tremendous parallels here. It's a simple, simple chapter in simple words about such profound subjects with so much amazing order it takes your breath away and I found myself when I was thinking about this I'm suddenly worshipping God of all places in my study (laughs) or in my garden you see the God that loves us takes your breath away wherever you are doesn't he he really does he's a wonderful wonderful God Absolutely wonderful. And he finishes Genesis 1.31 by saying this, that everything he made was, it wasn't just good, very good. Very good. It's very good. Everything. But you can't say that today, can you? Can you? It's amazing. We saw some amazing things yesterday, amazing beauty. But it's not very good now because God was describing men and women as well. Can you say men and women are very good now? Can you say that? You know, life doesn't seem to be like that now. Today, life's hard. Birth is painful. And death is certain. Isn't it? So what went wrong? What went wrong? Well... By the way, before we look at that, this is the formula for light. That's the speed of light formula. You know, just to see the garment that God wears, you've got to understand that formula. What a difference. What a wonderful world we live in. The God who spoke made it like that. And a clever man, he was actually Jewish, could actually come up with this equation. E equals MC squared. But don't be impressed by the man who came up with that formula. Be impressed with the one who spoke and the world came into being. And so we learn about him. But now we're going to look at what went wrong. Because something went wrong. And you know, here it is here, just a little bit. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made and said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the middle. Neither shall you touch it, because you're going to die if you do. 
But the serpent said to the woman, You won't surely die. That's not right. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God and you'll know good and evil. You see, this is how it went wrong. A gigantic moral catastrophe occurred and it originated with the devil. That's where it started. Who is the devil? Well, he's a fallen angel. And he takes the disguise of a reptile. He doesn't take the disguise of a snake because he's got legs at this point. He's a reptile. This is not myth or symbolism. And he appears as a talking lizard. And I guess one of the keys to his strategy was he looks small and insignificant. And so from a human perspective, you're looking down on this. And it took Adam and Eve by surprise. And it wasn't just Eve who was taken by surprise because we're told that Adam was standing next to her. And it tells me this, that men, we should speak up and look after our wives. The problem with Adam is that he was too passive. It wasn't that Adam was, Eve was on her own and the devil got her. No, he's standing there and he's got his hands in his pockets and he's, he's, you know, he's whistling his tune and he's so laid back he's horizontal. You know, is that the way we run our marriages, guys? Is that the way we look after our wives? It's not, is it? Is it? Because if it is, it's not right. Get your hands out of your pockets, men. And love your wife and look after her. But everything was ruined, basically. And notice the steps that we're told here. The serpent strategy is clear, isn't it? There's three steps to this strategy. They they don't change. It's always the same. Sowing doubts, creating desire, and getting the victim to disobey. That's how the devil works, isn't it? So the God who's with you, there's always a contest as well in the life that you're living because there's a devil who wants to get you as well. And he wants you to think about what's wrong he wants you, there's nothing wrong with being tempted, by the way, but he wants you, that's how it starts. It's what you do with the temptation. It's his strategy. He gets us to think about something that's wrong, then he gets us to want it, and as soon as we start to want it, we're a prisoner, and we finally do it. That's what happens. Beware of his strategy. Beware of it. And Eden was ruined. Everything was spoiled, and from that point on, everything was different. I'm just giving you a few tasters. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. And all the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. We'll come back to that a bit later on. But notice this, I hope you've got a Bible that has a wide margin at this point. Do you? Some Bibles don't, you see. Notice this, this is the first time God's holiness has been spoken about. We've heard nothing about God's holiness up till now. Notice this, it wasn't that there was divine anguish that triggered off this thing. It was human sin that triggered it off. But the human sin that triggered off had to be responded to by a divine holy God. Because he doesn't change. He doesn't change. You know that. I'm just reminding you what we know. And his holiness is spoken about. Because he's a holy God. And why we have a margin in our Bible at this point is because it's actually poetry. In other words, God is now communicating his emotion. It's not narrative, it's emotion. And basically he says the reptile... You're going to be a snake from now on. You're going to be on your belly. Your legs, I'm going to take your legs from underneath you. That's really what he says. And so he's a powerful adversary, but his legs have been taken from underneath him. And if you ever have a snake, anybody got a pet snake? No one's got a pet snake, right? You're very sensible people. But if you ever look at a snake... And look at its belly, you can find little marks where the legs used to be. 
Every snake's got one. It's very interesting, isn't it? It's very, very interesting. The reptile became a snake and its tiny legs have gone. I'm coming towards an end now. Have I still got your attention? And then to the woman, he said this, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And in pain you should bring forth children and your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So the devil was punished by being legless. The woman was published in respect to the family. And then we read to Adam, he said in verse 17, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat it, cursed is the ground. In pain you shall eat of it all the days, thorns and thistles. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you'd return to the grounds. And so for Adam, his punishment was in relation to his work. It's going to get sweaty and tough. Sweaty and tough. And yet for everybody, the punishment was human death and banishment from God's presence and spiritual death. Have I got your attention? You see, why am I doing this? Because... When we mention the Old Testament, sadly for many Christians, this glazed look comes over them. Ah, I just don't understand that book. It's just full of genealogies and names I can't pronounce. But listen, it's so important we understand this beginnings book. Because beginnings actually define how we live and what we know and what we believe. And so chapter 3, let's just wrap this bit up now. And one last point. Chapter 3 is called The Fall, and it's a bit like a stone, isn't it, thrown into a pond. So if you were to throw a stone into a pond, the ripples just go out. They just go out. And the consequences are still rippling out now. Genesis 4 to 11 involve lots of centuries. You've got to put time in between the chapters. There's several centuries here. And basically they... They cover all this human history. And so what happened is the sin of the first man caused the second man, Cain, to kill the third man, Abel. And relationships between human beings and God, between humans and fellow humans, between humans and the environments are all affected. Life is different. It's different. Now, we've got to ask ourselves this question. Why... Are we here? Where do we come from? Why is there so much evil in the world? Why does each one of us have to die? Do you ask those social questions? Do you find people ask those questions today? They do, don't they? You know, when things slow down or things get tough, those questions come to you. Why, why, why? And you have to answer this question. I'm sure you've done this already. Is Genesis just a bunch of human imagination? Or is it divine inspiration? You have to reach a conclusion. You've most probably done that. But as you engage in our mission with people who live and breathe around us, we have to engage that conversation with them as well. And do you know how to do that? Do you know what you believe? See, maturity isn't just another annular ring on your, on your tree. Maturity is, I know what I believe. It's not, it's not to do with age. It's to do with knowing what you know. That's what it is. And God wants, us to, you, God wants this church to be mature. If you're here, it's, I, I love all your vision. And you've written, it's a bit like Genesis 1. It's got few words. I understand it. And it's clear what you're doing. You know, you want a vibrant, large church here. And do you know this? When you do a vibrant large church, you can't do the notices like you've just done. You know that, don't you? Can't do it like that because there's 200 people. Can't do it. So there's a bit of pain in this as well. But that's what we want to do, isn't it? We want to grow. And you want to plant churches. I just think that's fabulously worded. Congratulations to everybody who did that. Let's look at the last thing, shall we? We see a glimpse of the drama of redemption. And that's what our worship's been about, isn't it? About the cross. 
And we see this here. It's just wonderful that we see it. So what we see here is, going back to that verse, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, what it's saying is, I'm giving you right in, the begin- right in Genesis 3 a glimpse of the cross. It's like we're on this hill, just supposing we're living in Genesis 3 time. And we suddenly look like that and get a glimpse and thought, wow, does that look a bit like a cross in the distance? And we get a glimpse of how God's going to save the world. And that's what he gives us here. And he says to Eve, he says, Eve, look, one of your offspring, and he deliberately uses the singular word, one of your offspring, Eve, is going to have a ding-dong with the devil. And the result will be this, that during the life of one of your offspring, the devil will come at him many, many times. But there's going to be an event that this offspring will be best known for that will actually knock him out. <laughs> and that's called the cross, isn't it? So right in Genesis 3, we get that amazing glimpse of salvation. It's just amazing, isn't it? It's your breath being taken away by the enormity and the largeness of God. That's what he does. And then my final comment is this. It'll take a few minutes to say his final comment, but it is my final comment. It's a story of Noah and the flood. Now, what's all that about? You know, is this just a nice story for kids? Uh-uh. It's not, is it? It's not just one of a hundred good Bible stories for kids that W.H. Smith can sell. It's not that. It's actually a glimpse of the amazing heart of God for men and women who've turned their back on him. The always God. We've turned our back on the always God. And he still loves us. That's the amazing thing. We read this in Genesis 6. God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil. Evil, evil, evil from morning to night. And God was sorry that he made the human race in the first place. It broke his heart. And God said, I'll get rid of this ruined creation. I'll make a clean sweep. People, animals, snakes, bugs, birds, the works. They're going to all go. I'm going to obliterate them. I'm sorry I made them. What an amazing phrase that is. I'm sorry I made them. It's got to be one of the most saddest verses in the Bible, isn't it? Hasn't it? You see, the flood was God's response to human sin. And God, who is holy, had to punish it. And he spoke to a man called Enoch. And Enoch basically gave the warning that judgment's coming. And he did it in a very unusual way. He had a son, and he was told to name him this name. When he dies, it will happen. Could you imagine if that was your name? You, know, you imagine being at school, can't you? you know, and uh, you, you're a bit late, and you know, someone calls out, when he dies, it will happen. Where are you? That was his name. When it dies, it will happen. We know him by the name Methuselah. But that's what that word means. Methuselah lived for the longest amount of time of any human being. What does that tell us? He couldn't die? It's hard for him to die? No. It tells us that God is slow to anger. Slow to anger. Look, Enoch, your son, is going to have a special name. When he dies, it will happen. The judgment's going to come. But he's going to live the longest life that any human being would ever live. Because I'm a God who's slow to punish. Aren't you just so thankful that we have a God like that? He's amazing, and yet when he died, in that very year, it started to rain, and the geysers opened up, and the flood came. And yet even here, we get a glimpse of salvation, because Enoch's great-grandson Noah, and his wife, and their three sons, and their three wives, were all saved in a very strange and extraordinary way. And it gives us a glimpse of God dying on a cross for us. And he gives us a glimpse of salvation. And they build a boat to God's specification. 
And they build it nowhere near any water. And they're laughed at for 120 years. <laughs> You're building a what? A boat. But why is that big? But the water's it's, it's miles away, Noah. Have you lost it completely? So you've got Methuselah living for 969 years. You've got 120 years of God saying, look, building this boat according to my specifications and people laughing. Let's never laugh at God, guys. Let's never laugh at him. Let's say we can have fun, but let's never belittle him. Let's, Let's never make him less than what he is. He's amazing. Just look at this. Do you know that modern boats are built on the same dimensions as the ark in terms of length and width? Did you know that? There was a, the first person to do that, they built the Canberra. And the Canberra is six times as long as it is wide. And one of the, the, the architects, the shipwrights or whatever you call them, was a Christian. And he had the genius to model modern liners on that, those dimensions. I don't know what you think about the ark. Here, here's the problem. Because I'm, I'm a cynic. I'm sure you're not. I'm, I'm, I can be a cynic. Yeah, I know you're from Wales, so you're okay. But Brits can be very cynical. Every expedition that sets out to find the ark finds one. <laughs> They're all in different places. Everybody comes back with a bit of wood. And it can make you very cynical, can't it? Hey? Can't it? Is it just me? But, listen to this. Listen to this. In 1948, an earthquake in the Mount Ararat range revealed what you see there. You can't really see it there. Go on the website. Ark Discovery, it's called. www.arkdiscovery. In 1959... A Turkish Air Force pilot spotted this. And he caused scientists to start rushing there. And they investigated it for the next 17 years with the permission of the Turkish authorities. And so in 1960, it was front cover on Life magazine. And various tests were taken. And then on June the 21st, 1987, I bet you didn't know this, the Turkish government opened a... Park, and you know what they called it? Noah's Ark National Park. You know, we're used to seeing signs to Snowdonia National Park. This is Noah's Ark National Park. And it included, yes, the compulsory visitor center. And you can visit it today. And today, road signs, just a few kilometers away, direct you to Noah's big boat. Did you know that? Listen, Go and have a look at their website and make your own mind up about that. It's very, very interesting. How do you view the Bible as I draw to a close? How do you view it? Are you cynical about it? Do you believe some parts and not other parts? Oh, I can believe the Gospels, but the rest, the rest. This is God's word. It's God's word. Is it a human imagination or is it divinely inspired? Genesis 1 is a widescreen account of creation. Yes, there are some anomalies of what I've told you about already. But we do observe that photosynthesis came after the light. (laughs) Genesis 2 is a topical account with the emphasis on man and his environment. They're not two different accounts. They're not by two separate authors. And Jesus combined quotations from both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in Matthew 19. Jesus regarded all the characters of Genesis as real historical figures. Do you? Do you? You see, we can say we're believers and not really believe. Do you know what I've found? If you start to really believe, it makes such a difference to the way you live and what you expect. 
And did you know this? That Genesis 1 to 6 are quoted in detail by all the eight major New Testament writers. Okay, I've said enough. Why am I doing this? I want to make you secure in your knowledge of God. I want you make, to make you confident that God really is the God of the Bible, the God who reveals himself. I want you to know the Bible is trustworthy. Yes, there's difficulties. Yes, there's some apparent anomalies. Yes, some things you have to work through. But you know what? It's trustworthy. It's God's word. And more importantly, my main point is to ask you, Wrexham, hello Wrexham, how big is your God? Is your God as big as the one that's revealed in the Bible? That's the key thing. And let me close with this. Romans 5 says this. We know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in. First sin, then death. But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who will get us out of it. If one man's sin put crowds of people at the dead end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. There's no comparison between that death-dealing sin and this generous, life-giving gift. The verdict on that one sin was the death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. It's a new life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes? Sovereign life in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift that the one man Jesus Christ provides. Let's just pray, shall we? Let's just pray together. If you want to, just hold your hands out. Why don't you just just grasp this life gift? Just take hold of what's already taken hold of you. If you're here for the first time when you've never given your life to Jesus, just surrender to him now. Just if you're view of Jesus is less than what the Bible reveals. Just apologize. And ask him to fill you. And thank him that the God who is being is always with you. Just grasp it now. Just grasp it for yourself. Just know that it can give you confidence in your week. In whatever you face. Just thank him. Just personally thank him for dying on a cross for you. Just personally thank him that the God who is, is your friend. You're part of his family. And he's with you. Fool, just come, Holy Spirit. Come. I pray for your power to come. Your wonderful power, Lord. We just tell you that we humble ourselves today. And we worship you in spirit and in truth. We love you, Lord. Forgive us when... We get dominated by ourselves and things that surround us. And forgive us when we fail to acknowledge that you're with us always and that you're bigger than anything we face. Just come, Holy Spirit. I want to ask you that you'd visit this church, that you'd visit, Lord. Thank you for the privilege of coming here. I pray you'd visit it, Lord, and uh, you'd just... Breathe fresh faith into the vision statement that it's going to happen. Fresh faith. Fresh faith. Oh, thank you, Lord. Be with that fresher stool, Lord Jesus. Be with operations on Monday there, Lord. Be with us in our workplace and in our home life. Be with us, Lord, in the joys and the sadness. We worship you, Lord. We thank you that When we look at this fallen world, Genesis clearly explains what's happened. We thank you that we can have a new beginning at the cross. Thank you, Father. Let your power come, Lord. Let your power come right now. Wonderful power. I'm going to finish with this. Please open your eyes. Just the... um, 
We're from King's Church in Darlington. We're just an ordinary church. We're much like you, actually. We don't quite meet in such a posh place as this, but it's okay. And um, essentially, just a young man, his name's AC. Uh, God just healed a blind eye at, the, um, at North. It wasn't through anybody. It, it, it's God. It's quite sovereign what happened, actually. And so a man called AC, his name is Andrew Coltman. He was born, born premature, and his, both his retinas detached, and doctors said he would be blind in both eyes for the rest of his life. But they managed to uh, attach a retina in one of the eyes, but for all of his life up till now, he's not been able to see diddly squat through one eye. And now he can. I mean, now he can. And now he can. Just last Sunday, no, two Sundays ago, there was a, someone who we know, we've been befriending for a long time, came and sat in the back of our church meeting. And uh, during the worship, he just felt like, I mean, he doesn't know the spiritual language, but he just felt like all this rubbish got taken out of him, basically. It's a bit like he got exercised in the right sense, in the biblical sense. And he just got cleaned up. And basically, he's come to know God. <laughs> and um, it's just fabulous, isn't it? Eh? Come on, how big is our God, Wrexham? Hello, Wrexham. How big is our God? What are you expecting? What are you expecting amongst you? And let's line up with what the Bible says. It's been a pleasure to be with you. I've gone on a bit longer than normal. And I thank you for bearing with me. But it's been great to be with you. I'll finally shut up. Thank you. Thank you.